brief for the United States in opposition to the petition for a writ of certiorari in Fisher v. United States, filed October 30, 2023. Enjoy. Statement The petitions for writs of certiorari arise from three criminal prosecutions in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. In each case, a grand jury returned an indictment charging a single defendant with multiple offenses arising out of the defendant's violent conduct at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, including one count of corruptly obstructing, influencing, or impeding an official proceeding, in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1512C2. The district court granted each defendant's pretrial motion to dismiss the Section 1512C2 count. The Court of Appeals consolidated the government's three interlocutory appeals and reversed. 1. On January 6, 2021, both houses of Congress met in a joint session to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election in accordance with the procedures specified by the Twelfth Amendment of the Federal Constitution and the Electoral Count Act. As Congress was undertaking its constitutional and statutory obligations with respect to the certification process, thousands of supporters of the losing candidate, Donald J. Trump, converged on the United States Capitol to disrupt the proceedings. The mob soon turned violent as rioters broke through the protective lines of the Capitol Police, assaulted officers, and shattered windows. The chaos wrought by the mob forced members of Congress and then-Vice President Michael Pence, presiding at the joint session in his role as President of the Senate, to stop the certification and flee for safety. In the House chamber where the joint session of Congress had been occurring, Police officers barricaded the door with furniture and drew their weapons to hold off rioters, while members of Congress and their staff were evacuated to safety. Congress was unable to resume the certification proceeding for nearly six hours, as police officers, federal agents, and members of the National Guard worked to reestablish control of the Capitol and clear out the hundreds of people who had disrupted the joint session. The events of January 6, 2021, marked the most significant assault on the Capitol since the War of 1812. The rampage left multiple people dead and injured approximately 140 law enforcement officers, including one who died on January 7 after being sprayed by rioters with bear spray. In the aftermath of the riot, workers labored to sweep up broken glass, wipe away blood, and clean feces off the walls. 2. Petitioners were each charged in separate federal indictments in the District of Columbia, with multiple offenses arising from their participation in the January 6th intrusion on the U.S. Capitol, including one count each of corruptly obstructing, influencing, or impeding an official proceeding, in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1512 C. 2. 
Section 1512C provides, Whoever corruptly, one, alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so, with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or, two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. As used in Section 1512, the term official proceeding includes a proceeding before the Congress. The relevant charging language in each indictment was identical. For example, the grand jury's superseding indictment against petitioner Edward Jacob Lang was charged that on or about January 6, 2021, within the District of Columbia and elsewhere, he attempted to, and did, corruptly obstruct, influence, and impede an official proceeding, that is, a proceeding before Congress, specifically Congress's certification of the Electoral College vote as set out in the Twelfth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, and 3 U.S.C. Sections 15 through 18. In addition to the Section 1512c2 count, Lang was also charged with four counts of assaulting a federal officer in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 111a, three counts of assaulting a federal officer using a dangerous weapon in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 111a and b, one count of civil disorder in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 231A3, one count of disorderly conduct in a restricted area with a dangerous weapon in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A2 and B, one count of engaging in physical violence in a restricted area with a dangerous weapon in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A4 and B, one count of disorderly conduct in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2D, and one count of physical violence in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2F. In a separate indictment, Petitioner Joseph Fisher was charged with one section 1512c2 count and one count each of obstructing or interfering with a law enforcement officer during the commission of a civil disorder in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 231a3, assaulting a federal officer in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 111a, entering or remaining in a restricted area in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A1, engaging in disorderly conduct in a restricted area in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A2, engaging in disorderly conduct in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2D, and parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2G. 
In a third indictment, petitioner Garrett Miller was charged with one Section 1512C2 count and two counts of obstructing or interfering with a law enforcement officer during the commission of a civil disorder in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 231A3. One count of assaulting a federal officer in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 111A, two counts of transmitting a threat in interstate commerce in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 875C, one count of entering or remaining in a restricted area in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A1, one count of disorderly conduct in a restricted area in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A2, one count of impairing ingress or egress in a restricted area in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1752A3, one count of disorderly conduct in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2D, one count of impeding passage in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2E, and one count of parading, demonstrating, or picketing in the Capitol Building in violation of 40 U.S.C. Section 5104E2G. 3. The District Court granted Miller's pretrial motion to dismiss the Section 1512C2 count. Although the court agreed with the government that the joint session of Congress on January 6 was an official proceeding, the court took the view that the conduct alleged in the indictment did not fit within the scope of Section 1512C2. The court viewed that provision to be implicitly limited by the language of Section 1512C1, which makes it a crime to corruptly alter, destroy, mutilate, or conceal a record, document, or other object with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding. The court acknowledged that alternative readings of Section 1512C2 are possible, but it viewed its document-focused reading as presenting the fewest interpretive problems and as the most consistent with the statutory context and history. Thus, although Miller's indictment charged him with corruptly obstructing an official proceeding by participating in the events at the Capitol on January 6 that disrupted and delayed the joint session— the district court dismissed the Section 1512C2 count on the ground that it did not allege that Mr. Miller personally took some action with respect to a document, record, or other object in order to corruptly obstruct, impede, or influence Congress's certification of the electoral vote. The government moved for reconsideration, contending both that the court's construction of Section 1512C2 was incorrect and that in any event, dismissal of the Section 1512C2 count was unwarranted because the indictment gave the defendant sufficient notice of his violation even under that document-focused construction. The court denied the motion, adhering to its view that the indictment was insufficient because nothing in the indictment informs Miller of what actions he is alleged to have taken with respect to some document, record, or other object.
The district court later incorporated its reasoning to similarly grant pretrial motions to dismiss the Section 1512c2 counts against Fisher and Lang. 4. The Court of Appeals consolidated the government's interlocutory appeals, reversed the orders of dismissal, and remanded for further proceedings. The court determined that Section 1512c2 applies to all forms of corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, other than the conduct that is already covered by Section 1512c1, and that the district court had erred in construing Section 1512c2 to reach only actions taken with respect to documents, records, or other objects. A. The Court of Appeals began by examining the text of Section 1512c, which it found to be unambiguous. It observed that the commonplace dictionary meaning of otherwise is in a different manner and it explained that applying that definition of otherwise is consistent with the text and structure of surrounding provisions, which likewise include specific prohibitions and catch-all clauses designed to ensure that obstructive conduct is broadly prohibited. The court further noted that the word otherwise is a natural way to introduce a catch-all provision, because that term conveys that the conduct prohibited by the catch-all provision reaches beyond the specific examples in the preceding sections. The Court of Appeals also observed that the vast majority of courts interpreting the statute, including every circuit to have considered the issue, has applied Section 1512c2 to all forms of obstructive conduct that are not covered by subsection c1. The court rejected petitioners' effort to characterize decisions in other circuits as limited to evidence impairment. And the court noted that no fewer than 14 other district judges had rejected analogous pretrial challenges to Section 1512c2 charges in prosecutions of defendants who allegedly participated in the Capitol riot. The Court of Appeals further explained that reading a document nexus element into Section 1512c2 was implausible, including because other provisions in the statutory scheme demonstrate that Congress is more than capable of limiting the reach of an obstruction statute to document-related misconduct when it wishes to do so. The court also observed that a cramped, document-focused interpretation of Section 1512c2 would be dubious given the comprehensive scope of document-related obstruction already covered by Section 1512c1, making it difficult to envision why a catch-all aimed at even more document-related acts would be necessary as a backstop. The Court of Appeals found the District Court's invocation of Begay v. United States, 2008, in which this court had interpreted a statutory definition with a very different structure than the prohibition at issue here, to be misplaced. The Court of Appeals also observed that the a usedom generis and nocitor associus canons 
failed to supply a sound basis for rejecting the natural reading of Section 1512c2. And the court noted that, while it need not consider the legislative history, it had nonetheless reviewed the statute's history and found nothing inconsistent with its interpretation. The Court of Appeals then explained that petitioners' arguments about surplusage did not support their construction of the statute. Petitioners contended that reading subsection C2 broadly renders other, more specific prohibitions like those in subsection C1 unnecessary. But the court observed that substantial overlap between provisions is not uncommon in criminal statutes, and that such overlap would also occur under petitioner's approach. The court also observed that any overlap is easily explained by the fact that Congress drafted and enacted Section 1512C after the rest of Section 1512, at which point avoiding any overlap would have required completely rewriting the statute. B. In a portion of the lead opinion that Judge Walker declined to join, Judge Pan addressed concerns about the potential breadth of the actus reus element by emphasizing that the mens rea element, corruptly, imposed an important limitation on the statute's scope. Judge Pan noted that the meaning of corruptly was not the focus of these appeals and that the district court had declined to construe the term and she found it unnecessary in this case to settle on any particular definition herself because the allegations against petitioners appear to be sufficient to meet any proposed definition. In particular, Judge Pan observed that under the leading potential formulations, corrupt intent exists at least when an obstructive action is independently unlawful and petitioners are all charged with assaulting law enforcement officers in the Capitol riot. Judge Walker wrote separately to endorse a specific construction of the corruptly mens rea element as requiring proof that the defendant acted with an intent to procure an unlawful benefit either for himself or for some other person. Judge Walker stated that his vote to uphold the indictments depended on that interpretation of the term corruptly, which both other members of the panel declined to endorse. C. Judge Katsis dissented. On his view, Section 1512c2 would encompass only acts that impair the integrity or availability of evidence. Judge Katsis did not endorse any particular definition of the statute's corruptly mens rea element. 5. Petitioners sought rehearing on Bonk, which the Court of Appeals denied without any noted dissent. The Court of Appeals did, however, grant petitioners' motions to stay the issuance of its mandate pending the disposition of these petitions. Meanwhile, during the pendency of the appellate proceedings, the government dismissed one of the interstate threat counts against Miller 
and he pleaded guilty to the remaining charges. The district court sentenced Miller to 38 months of imprisonment to be followed by three years of supervised release for those offenses. We've come to the end of part one, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.